Welcome back to Miskatonic University's Literature Department's Remote Education Program, Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society in History, a.k.a. the Comics Course. I am, as always, your Professor Hamby, and our TA Rowan is here. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Now, we are a day late with today's course because, unfortunately, it's been just a crazy week. And yesterday, I got woken up uh, in the very early hours of the morning. I was asleep under my desk, as I usually am in my little desk fort. And there was just this huge splintering sound. And my door was broken open by an extremely pregnant wolfhound. Mm -hmm. And I have spent all day cleaning up amniotic fluid. Well, all that day. Uh, whole litter was born right here. Completely destroyed a pile of comics. Fortunately, they were all Rob Leefield X-Forces, so I didn't really care. Um, and, uh, yeah. So we're a day late with the course. Sorry, folks. The puppies were cute, though. They are. And I think a couple of them have bonded. So, you know, that's a thing. Uh, I'm also apparently getting a new door that has been removed from a Victorian mansion that 72 people have died in. Uh, and the door, according to legend, has seven human skulls embedded in it. Um, this is a gift from Dr. Feckett, who said I only deserve the best for how I took care of his classes while he was gone. The university just loves you. I know. You're I clearly Dr. Feckett's favorite professor. I know. Which is why I got you to go to Goodwill and buy those speakers, which are now facing the wall towards Dr. Feckett's office. And during his operating hours where he works with students, uh, I am playing trap music as loud as I possibly can. I wondered why you asked me to get those. Yep. You sounded very upset when you asked me to get them. Well, Dr. Feckett and I are back to our mutual disdain and hatred of each other, so all is right in the universe. Uh, Clearly. And today we're going to continue talking about the Black Panther. We're going to stretch this out a long time. I do have to say, I have a follow-up to some past uh, Feckett class sessions. Uh, F-E-K-K-I-T, not Dr. Feckett, which is F-E-Q-Q-I-T. Um, you, you know, so sales on the uh, Jonathan Kent Superman is Gay books are out. And unfortunately, because I looked up a couple of videos... By these comic skaters, YouTube is now giving me all kinds of anti-woke uh, stuff. I, I hate the term woke. I, I just, you know, I don't think a desire to let people tell their own stories has to have any additional social connotation. I just want people to be able to tell their stories. And I want to be able to read them. That's it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think this needs some additional social justice or woke connotation or whatever. Uh, maybe it's because I'm a humanist, but I, I, I feel like people are people before they're anything else. But w one of these videos popped up in my feed, and I think it's the same guy who originally broke the story, Ethan Van Tiny Penis. Um, and he, he was bragging that sales dropped by like ha half. Uh, uh, I don't know what the previous sales in this book were, but I hate to break it to any comic skaters out there. But... The direct market is a fucking joke. It, it, it is. What the direct market serves are a bunch of old white guys. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. What the direct market does is barely keep afloat Marvel and DC as publishing entities and hopefully allow them to basically break even. Now, what DC is going to care about is two other things. Two other things. And, and the difference in, say, 20 and 40,000 copies sold or 40 and 80,000 copies is inconsequential to these two other things. One is when they collect the trade paperbacks, how are they going to sell in bookstores and in library market and things like that? Way, way, way more important. Period. Just period. The other thing that matters is how this works as an intellectual property to Warner Brothers as an entity. Because I'll go ahead and tell you, if they slap out a Jonathan Kent gay Superman TV show that brings in people like crazy and has merchandising tie-ins and people, and it captures, say, the Vampire Diaries crowd or whatever, your 40,000 copies sold on the direct market aren't 
even the catering budget of that show. Mm-hmm. That's just the truth, man. And so DC is not concerned with that. DC is going to collect these. They're going to see how they sell. They're going to see how they respond. They're, they're going to do test audiences. The, the direct market sales are meaningless. So Comics Gators bragging about how sales dropped in the direct market means nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, it may bomb. I'm not saying this is going to be a success. Uh, I, but the direct market sales don't mean anything. But anyway, let's get back to another comic that was sold mostly on the direct market. But about 33, 32 years ago. Uh, and that is Black Panther, Volume 2. Now, Black Panther... We've been talking about Black Panther for a while now. T'Challa. By now, he was a solid B-list superhero of the Marvel Universe. He's not a Captain America, not a Thor, not a whatever. Now, that's changed with the DC Cinematic Universe. He is one of the most recognizable superheroes in the world now. People have identified with him, especially uh, those of African descent, uh, whether they're African themselves or the African diaspora around the world. Let's not limit this to African Americans because it's incredibly Amerocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing had been published with him for a while at this point in 1983 um, when Dennis Cohen approached an editor at Marvel and said, I want to draw a Black Panther series, but I need somebody to write it. I don't have a story. I just, but I want to do something with Black Panther. Now, Black Panther had not been super popular, but had had an ongoing popularity. And Dennis Cohen was a fairly hot artist who was going back and forth between Marvel and DC. He never became one of the giant names of the industry, uh, but he made a landmark series with DC of The Question, written by Dennis O'Neill. I think the world of Dennis Cohen... uh, In fact, if Dennis Cohen wanted to draw a series about pregnant hippos who follow the Grateful Dead around from show to show, I would find a way to write it for the man. Um, I, I, I think the world of his art... I have very little original comic book art. It's not a collector thing that interests me, but I have a page of Dennis Cohen's original penciled art from the question framed here. Um, That's the regard I have for his work. Is it that one? Yes, you can see it over my desk right now. It is a page where Vic Sage is waking up and has suffered amnesia and is framing the infamous question of, who am I? That is the question. It is a pivotal moment. Uh, so anyway, we, we, we are now, and, and for those who don't know, Dennis Cohen is an African-American. He's about 60 years old now. He was a fairly new artist at the time, and later has gone on to do a number of other things. He co-founded Milestone Media with Dwayne McDuffie in the early 90s. I want to say about 93. He worked on the Static Shock animated series. And Static Shock has just made a return to DC recently. He's an amazing creative force. So anyway, this editor at Marvel turned around and said, well, we got this writer named Peter Gillis. And Peter Gillis was thrilled to work with him. Now, I've pulled up Peter Gillis's Wikipedia page here so that... Rowan could see a picture of him. Tell him what you told... Tell the students what you told me when you saw this picture. He looks like a mass murderer a few hours before he commits the crime. He kind of does. He's looking... He's obviously at a comic book convention signing things, and somebody's taking a picture, and he's looking at the camera like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm -hmm. Uh, He does not look happy. Now... Peter Gillis has not written a ton of comics. Uh, I don't think he ever was hugely successful as a comic book writer. He went and did other things. Uh, He did, however, write two of my favorite things ever. He wrote The Black Panther, Volume 2, which was a four-issue miniseries. And he wrote Tell Gunner Joe for DC Comics, which was one of their science fiction standalone miniseries in the early 80s that I loved uh, back when it came out. So... There you go. He's not done a whole lot, but I think what he has done is really good and solid. Now, Black Panther is a sort of interesting thing because 
it was published in 1988, but it was mostly written, and I'll explain what I mean by mostly in a second, back in 1983. So Dennis Cohen went to an editor. The editor hooked him up with Peter Gillis. They got together. They started working on it. They produced three issues, and they then went into a file drawer. What? And they never got an explanation of why. But obviously, the political nature of the story was a big part of it. And we'll talk about the politics of it in just a minute. Then five years later, as the political situation changed, suddenly they came back out. Now, Peter Gillis has said he doesn't know who ordered these away. Uh, the people he worked with directly, he believes, would have been up front with him and told him if they had axed it. So maybe it, there's a good chance it was somebody higher up the chain. And given Marvel's conservative ownership during that time period, that's very likely. And very likely, they put hush orders down that said, do not talk about this, just shelve it. But by 1988, the political situation had changed. They came out, they were being published, and then suddenly they had to finish the series. So the script was probably mostly the same. Dennis Cohen, however, has said that his challenge was that in five years... His art had improved and gotten better, and he kind of had to go back and look at the old issues and try to make his art worse to match what he had done five years before on the three previous <laughs> issues. Oh, come on. <laughs> they really did that to him? Yeah. Well, you know, when there's a five-year gap, and I mean... They didn't let him go redo and redo all the original art? Well, they weren't going to pay him to redo it. And when you're a working artist, I mean, a whole book of art is a lot of work. That's, that's like asking somebody to not collect a paycheck for a couple of months. Well, I'm saying they weren't willing to pay him to go redo it. No, no. This, this was being published new. No, that wasn't happening. So let, let's talk about the political situation. So what Peter Gillis and Dennis Cohen decided on was a story about apartheid. Now, for those who don't know... Apartheid was a political uh, policy of racial separation in South Africa. Now, a lot of people will say, well, America's had racism, and America certainly has. But the situations are fundamentally different. I'm, I'm not prepared to say whether one is better or worse than the other. Uh, in the United States, our country is large and situations vary dramatically. And certainly racism is something we're still struggling to remove from our country and still struggling to create racial parity in our country. But with a few exceptions, with some exceptions, uh, the law in our country has been fairly fair. It is not the laws that have been racist. It is people that have been racist and how people therefore implemented those laws have been racist. Now we can debate this. Uh, Ibram Zindi talks about it in a fair book in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. If anybody wants to read it, I happen to agree with him largely. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. I mean, for example, uh, one of the laws that is true in many states in the United States is also a part of a apartheid in South Africa, which is that the races couldn't co-marry. In fact, South Carolina, I know, still has that law. Uh, it's not been enforced in many, many years, but every year people try to get it removed and a bunch of racist rednecks argue on the basis of tradition that it should stay on the books. Tradition. Tradition being a code word for we want to keep it there in case we have a chance to reinforce it again one day. Mm -hmm. uh, as they have done with other laws in South Carolina and other states. So apartheid was not just a social policy of racial segregation, but it was encoded in laws on many, many, many levels, more so than was true in the U.S. They took what people did socially in the U.S. and encoded it in law. And for those who don't know the history of South Africa, it's a little complicated, uh, having been settled by the Dutch and having English involvement. Uh, and there certainly had been informal apartheid before 1948, but as of 1948 is when the actual legal forms of apartheid were incorporated. And this, of course, was a problem. It meant that it put an absolute wall up. At the same time, where in the United States, by the 1950s, African Americans were starting to use their political authority to push for racial justice. And you can read uh, books like A Nation Under Our Feet 
to get more information on that. They were absolutely stopped in South Africa. They had no opportunities. So conflict happened. So while we had people like Martin Luther King Jr., they had somebody like Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, who originally uh, believed in peaceful protest and then later moved towards violent opposition when peaceful protest had no chance of succeeding. Now, Nelson Mandela was a civil rights leader in South Africa. And then after attempts to do some bombings, was arrested, put on trial for treason, uh, not convicted of treason, but convicted of many other crimes, and sentenced to prison. And he became a symbol for the civil rights movement in South Africa. And by the early 80s, people began pushing very strongly for Nelson Mandela to be freed, for apartheid to be ended, for uh, and, and figures like Bishop Tutu of Johannesburg were a major part of this. If you don't know who Bishop Tutu is, he's a fascinating figure in his own right. He is the Anglican Bishop of uh, Johannesburg. He's still alive. Um, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, I believe. He has a daughter who's a professor in the United States and is a lesbian and was an ordained priest herself. And when she married another woman, had it removed which he has fought, and he has said that the fight against homophobia uh, deserves the same uh, struggle as the fight for racial equality. So, uh, a fascinating fellow, worth study. So, and a charismatic fellow. Now, by the 1980, the world was beginning to get smaller. We didn't have the internet yet, but the global economy was certainly had gone from a thing that existed, but you could largely ignore, to something that was a part of everybody's life. Uh, communication, TV, uh, culture, media was making the world a little bit smaller. And by the early 80s, yeah, people were calling out against apartheid in the United States where Marvel Comics was at. But largely at the level of political policy uh, and economic decision making, the attitude was, well, let's wag our finger at them and try to make the hippies happy, but we're not going to rock the boat because who cares if a bunch of black people get massacred and hurt? Um, and if you think the United States Congress is filled with a bunch of old white guys now in the early 1980s, woo-wee! Right, exactly. I mean, it is a bastion of diversity now compared to 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, oh, the hounds are at it again. I, I'll feed, I know the pups want to see me. I'll take care of them later. I'll feed them later. I've got bottles here with goat's milk. Um, White goats. I was able to get it free. Somebody said that there was this goat with a thousand young and a bunch of the young have gone off. So there's lots of extra milk. Shibnugaroth or something. So I figure it has, you know, I mean, if a goat can feed that many young over time, it's got to have really nourishing milk then, right? I, I would be questioning that story. They don't have litters. It, it, it was a Miskatonic alumni. You have to trust your brethren. That's even more concerning. No, not at all. So back to the class. The So this was all happening in the early 80s and... Yes, people were protesting and people were saying we need to bring down apartheid. But in the five years between 1983, when Black Panther Volume 2 was started its creation, and 1988, when it was finally published, it built and built and built. Wow, they're really going at it. I, I think we might have lost another freshman there. Um, that's all right. They, they need to sharpen their teeth. The bones will be good for the pups. Uh-huh. So, we Sin, Sun City became a symbol of this movement. Mm -hmm. It was like a resort in South Africa. And all kinds of entertainers from the West, including black entertainers, would slip over there, get paid a ton of money to perform at this resort, and then slip back and pretend that, no, they weren't taking money to entertain a bunch of racists. But they were. Uh, and then over time, groups like U2 and uh, Little Steven and others began doing things to motivate. In fact, uh, U2 did a great song called Silver and Gold. If anybody has 
well, I, people have access to streaming services now. You can look it up. It, it's a great rallying song about the injustices in South Africa. So why go through all this? I go through all this because Cohen and Gillis wanted to write a story about South Africa and the Black Panther. They situated Wakanda right next to South Africa. And once again, Wakanda has moved. Right. And so take a map. Uh, take a map. Check it. They position Wakanda next to South Africa. It's going to move all over the Franken continent before we're done with all the Black Panthers. So... It's hard for me to articulate to people who weren't around at the time how much of a sea change there was at that point. That something that was critical of South Africa in 1983 would, by 1988, become non-controversial to publish. Maybe seen as slightly edgy, but not much. Now... Marvel did say that they didn't want to actually name South Africa. They wanted some form of plausible deniability. So Peter Gillis called it a Zania. Now, unfortunately, what he didn't tell the editors at Marvel is that a Zania is a generic term for that region of Africa. And there were revolutionary groups within South Africa. Africa using the term Azania as a term for South Africa itself. That's amazing. So, I mean, he, he was putting it out there pretty blatantly. He named some of the villains after the vish, the guard dogs of some of the actual thugs running South Africa. Wow. Um, so, so, it was pretty blatant. Now, this was all very political, and this was fairly new. I mean, Marvel at the time was a company that wanted to be known as edgy. They wanted to be known as hip. But they wanted this very centrist left liberalism that seemed edgy but never actually took any chances. They won something without actually taking the risk of doing it. Right. And this was out there. Now, for Gillis, he said that he felt that Black Panther had always been inherently political. I mean, if you go back to the 1960s, when the Black Panther premiered back in Fantastic Four, you know, the story is the story of an African nation getting rich through the, this vibranium mound. I mean, this is a time when, as Gillis points out, uh, the Congo was being invaded by European mercenaries for their uranium supplies. And certainly, we still talk about the blood diamond trade today, where Western countries... Uh, pay off native tribes to murder each other and secure diamond rights. So it's horrifying, right? So Europeans invading Africa to secure natural resources uh, has been happening for a long time, and it's very clear that the story of Wakanda is a parable for that. Except it's a country that fought off the Europeans, that fought off the invader claw and kept themselves hidden. So it is, in a sense, an, inher an inherently political story, but in that classic Marvel style, then also sidestepped it by having no actual oppression. The threat of it, the attempted invasion, but then no actual aftermath to make anybody uncomfortable. The, we're going to try and look edgy, but not actually do anything to be edgy. But then as we approach this four-issue limited series there are consequences. Mm -hmm. And they come from outside Wakanda, but affect Wakanda. Now, they were told by Marvel editorial, whatever they did to Black Panther, they had to put him back to that default state at the end of it. That was a very standard approach for Marvel at the time. They did not want fundamental changes to characters to happen. They wanted people to be able to pick up books, recognize characters, and not need to know a bunch of lore because their fundamental states never changed. And... That was fine with Gillis and Cohen. They didn't feel like the Black Panther needed any major changes um, or any changes at all. So they worked with what was already there. Although his psychic powers were long gone, including any kind of vague conflict point sense. And so that's where we start. That Wakanda is next to this fictional nation of Azania, which is a stand-in for South Africa, with all the racial tensions happening. And... How does this affect Wakanda? Well, we open the story with the Black Panther out in the wild. He's taming down a rhino. We've seen the same sort of scene happen back in the earlier jungle action books. And so we immediately think, okay, 
This is a callback to jungle action. Maybe we're going to have that kind of story again. That's more meaningful than, you know, a bunch of golden frogs. I'm not talking badly about you. And yes, I know it's brass frogs. But you have to admit, they look golden in the art. No, I'm not being a racist. <laughs> Shut up. Why is he still uh, here? He's going to stay with us for the in, until the last brass frog appears in Black Panther. But all he does is insult us. Well, yeah, there are reasons for that, I'm told. No, you don't have freedom of speech. That's only for humans. Look, I will effing muzzle you. I'm not a racist. Anyway, so T'Challa's fighting a rhino, and then these panthers show up and are about ready to attack him. Now, this is a problem. This is the introduction of a new idea, by the way. And because the panthers should see him as a friend because of his connection to the panther spirit. Now, up until this point, we've had talk about a panther spirit. We've had talk about the past of Wakanda. But it's very much been a tribal society with a scientific influence, and we haven't seen any proof of a spiritual, magical aspect to Wakandan culture. And now we find out there definitively is. I mean, panthers will not attack him because of his connection to the panther spirit, not just because he's good at handling them or something. And as this is happening, a black man is being tortured in an Azanian prison, and as the panthers attack him, suddenly that black man grows fangs and claws and murders the police who are beating him. He is possessed by the panther spirit. The panther spirit leaves T'Challa and goes. Now, again, we have a reference here to the Wakandas. And this idea is built up that we don't see a whole lot of in later times that essentially... The South African people are connected, or the Azanian people, if you will, to the people of the Wakandas. And they're kind of part of one larger tribal group. Um, that is certainly a different idea than we see in other places. Certainly, we don't see it in the future Black Panther comics, and we don't see it in the movies. But you can also say that maybe it's a stand-in for the idea of fellowship of other Blacks, other people. Uh, so what happens at this point? Well, T'Challa is kind of embarrassed. People begin questioning. We see that in their culture, the connection of the panther spirit is so important to them spiritually that they call T'Challa's leadership into question now. The idea that he may not be a leader anymore because the spirit has left him. And Cohen does something interesting with the art that I've never seen them do in the Black Panther before, which he's drawn with very feline eyes. They're green with a different kind of pupil, a feline pupil, to emphasize this idea that the Black Panther, due to his spiritual connection, is not entirely human. And not just because he drinks from a bunch of flowers that basically give him a super soldier serum effect. So there's something more than that. Just saying, I don't trust those flowers. Well, we're not going to get into that right now. So, back as things are happening, uh, the Azanian black people have been trying to revolt against the government, but the government has them outgunned. You know, it's one of those things, you know, the natives bring spears and rifles, and the government comes in in armored paddy wagons and machine guns. So, the people are successfully oppressed. Now, back in Wakanda, we see older people dressed in these ritual robes and things like that. But then the young people, uh, we have one particular representative here who shows up in a police t-shirt. I don't mean police as in you know, uh, the civil servants of the government, but the police, you know, as in the band from the 80s. Oh. So that represents this modern Western influence coming into Wakanda. Mm -hmm. And he's saying... Well, it's all nice and good that you old people are standing around saying we have to do whatever the Black Panther says, but I'm saying we should be looking out for our brothers in Azania. We have tribal fellowship. There are also blacks like us. These are white invaders. And if the leadership of our country won't do what's right, then we have a right to talk up against, speak against them. 
And so we see this internal conflict developing within Wakanda. Now, I'm just going to read direct from the comic to represent T'Challa's views here. I am shocked to learn of the brutal murder of the Governor Fugard in his home two days ago. Although a member of a government, all just men must condemn. He fought long and hard for equality and representative rule. I condemn his murder. Now, let's back this up. I said more murders were happening by the Panther Spirit. This included this white politician and his family who actually had been fighting for more ra racial change. So, let's continue with T'Challa's speech. I condemn the masters of Azania who for generations have inflicted pain and death on an innocent populace because of their race. And in the same breath, I condemn our own leaders who promote a cause that does nothing except visit more pain and death on our brothers. Slaughter is not freedom, death is not freedom, and defeat is not freedom. So he's here positioning himself, saying, this is wrong. And, but if we are just encouraging people to get killed, what are we accomplishing? I mean, let's go back to that statement I made about you know, we have a tribal culture that might have handguns or rifles versus people in tanks with machine guns. It's just sending people to slaughter to, to position them in a military conflict. Uh, continuing, he says, I condemn the man who arrogates himself the panther. Spirits, bleh, bleh, bleh. Let me restart that. Actually, you know what? Never mind. We can just move on past it. I'm gonna. I. I we don't need to hear the whole thing. It, it's very simple. His position is simple. These are bad people. They're doing bad things. But he disagrees with going to military conflict that's just going to lead to death. And in turn, he's called out as a traitor by one of his supporters. And the traitor says, "And by the way." You're not, you don't have the backing of the Panther Spirit anymore, so why should we listen to you? You're not our leader anymore. So we now see a returning voice from Jungle Action, Mediano, uh, the old man who was freed at the very beginning of the Black Panther Jungle Action run from that bamboo cage. Wait, he, he still exists? Yes, that's him right there in the golden robes with the red staff. Oh. And I, the I, scarred up face. I forgot about him. And he says the Black Panther, to prove himself, must face the trial of the White Ape. Now, as all this is happening, he the Black Panther does have supporters. And while T'Challa goes to face the White Ape and succeeds, one of his supporters, and you can identify him easily because among all these guys in old tribal robes, he's the one guy in a three-piece suit, <laughs> it turns out had used a piece of technology to weaken the White Ape uh, enabling T'Challa, even without the support of the Panther Spirit, to beat it. And then as issue two comes along, we see a bunch of white supremacist superheroes, well, supervillains, attack. They are called, and I'm not making these names up, these are actually not the worst names I've ever seen. Barricade, Vortrekker, the White Avenger, That's that one's pretty on the nose, Hunger, with a Y and 7E, Captain Blaze, and Harrier. These are the Azanian uh, ultra-supremists. The White Avenger. The White Avenger, right. Who's kind of a Superman stand-in. Uh, later on, they attack Wakanda. The Black Panther kicks their ass. Obviously, Wakanda does not have a force shield, and apparently is relatively easy to find for them, which is, you know, a shame. Uh Suffice it to say, these guys are not seen again in the entire history of Marvel Comics after this, except for one issue of Night Thrasher, which is an African-American character that guest-starred Black Panther in the 90s, I think, about five years after this was published. That's probably best for the way they're dressed. Not the worst superhero costumes ever, though, I gotta say. Or super villain, super character, super supremacist. Eh, we'll just go with ass munchers. <laughs> um, 
I, I'm not going to go into detail on the attack on Wakanda. It's ridiculous. Uh, but well done. I mean, it's actually entertaining, and it's entertaining to see how T'Challa beats them. But we also have this interesting bit where we flash over to Paris, and we find out that in the Order of the Panther, this modern order of Wakandans who support T'Challa uh, and are kind of a secret agent counterpoint to uh, the tribalness of the elders in Wakanda, that the guy who weakened the white ape shows up to this woman's apartment to ask for her help. And we're left in this sort of mysterious state there while we flash back to T'Challa. Now, T'Challa beats up the bad guys. He wins. There's a big festival in his honor. Everyone's like, okay, clearly you're the king. We love you. But as things are happening, T'Challa tries to get their attention, and he can't. They subconsciously ignore him. Ooh. And he realizes he is only the king in name now. They don't respect him anymore. So that leads us to issue three, to save a nation. T'Challa basically slips secretly out of Wakanda and shows up in Paris at that same woman's apartment where she threatens to shoot him and then he kisses her on the neck and, you know, we have a cut scene, but it's pretty clear that we have a bomb chicka bow wow moment and T'Challa's a player, man. So we have a little bit of a flashback to T'Challa, the playboy that we had back in Fantastic Four. And if you think uh, this is overt, wait till we get to Christopher Priest, man. Oh my God. Christopher Priest turned everything up to 11. T'Challa, the scientist. T'Challa, the, the player. T'Challa, the king. T'Challa, the badass. I mean, he is just... Yeah, I mean, Christopher Priest is the guy who made the Black Panther somebody, kind of the Batman of the Marvel Universe in a way. It's like, you, you know, you okay, Black Panther faces Thor. Well, by all logic, Thor would win, but it's fucking T'Challa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, meaning he wins. Right. I mean, you don't know how, but somehow he's going to win. Um, and... But we're not there quite yet. This is a strong Black Panther. It's a strong T'Challa. Uh, but he's facing a very mortal sort of crisis of faith. The spirit has abandoned him. He's, he's unworthy. But he still has a duty. And his duty leads him to Paris to buy fake uh, uh, credentials and information from a broker. He has to trade in, among other things, his Avengers ID card, Whoa. which is super secret. But it gets him access to what he needs, including access to the Azanian site where the nuclear missile is going to be fired against Wakanda. Azania is looking to nuke Wakanda. That's terrifying. And they capture T'Challa, and they put him on TV, and... He starts to do this televised address where he says, I have offered to go on a Zanian television to emphasize more forcefully my previous statement that the revolt in Azania is a mistake. It is a futile attempt and is wrong insofar as it has brought death and devastation to thousands of Azanians, black and white alike. I ask my brothers in all sincerity to lay down their arms and cease this bloodbath. I say this not because I am being coerced in any way, but because it is right and true. I condemn this senseless waste of human life. And the people watching this, including Wakanda, are reacting as you would think they would. I can't believe this. He's playing into their hands. Why is he doing this? Is he a sellout? And of course, the reader is thinking, is he a coward? Is he this afraid for his life? You know, this isn't a superhero. And then he continues, Yes, I tell you, lay down your arms, my brothers to cease throwing your lives away, but never stop fighting. You must fight this injustice, this racism, this genocide. You must force the world to see your masters for the monsters they are. You must fight these murderers, these blackmailers, these tyrants, even as I do here now. 
and you see him punching the camera. And now we get T'Challa versus a giant room of armed uh, Azanian South African police thugs. And then T'Challa proceeds to fight his way out of this whole room, but he gets captured. He gets chained up. He fails. Without the panther spirit, it's not enough. And in his cell, while he's chained up, the panther spirit appears. And it says, I am the god you have forsaken, but I can't do this. Wakanda is going to be destroyed. My people destroyed. So I will free you so that you can do what I cannot. And he does. T'Challa the, uh, gets out of the cell once the panther spirit opens it and loosens his locks. He gets to the nuclear missile. He disarms it. And he returns to Wakanda. He returns to Wakanda a hero. People are celebrating him. They're doing a ritual dance, imitating the triumph over the Supremus and the triumph over Azania. They go to put a ceremonial robe on him and he throws it away. Now, this is the turning point. The first three issues were about the Wakandan conflict with Azania, and that was put foremost. And as a sort of side conflict, a minor conflict, was T'Challa versus himself, as well as T'Challa versus the spirit. Now, T'Challa versus the spirit is the entire focus of the last issue. He must resolve the conflict with the panther spirit. He must heal Wakanda's soul, in his own words. So, he just leaves. From this place of celebration where everyone's gathered, he just jumps into the trees and disappears. They find him, but he's now deep in the jungle and waiting for the panther spirit. And the panther spirit proceeds for the next 15 or so pages to, little by little, whoop his ass. I mean, I don't talk, I'm not talking about a little bit of whooping. I'm talking about, like, a big-ass grown man takes a small child and smacks it around for 15 pages through a jungle. Just whoops him, bites him, tears flesh off, mocks him for 15 pages. He's out for blood. But he doesn't want to do it quick. He wants to make it hurt. He wants to make T'Challa bleed out as he runs. And But the mistake that this panther spirit makes is this is T'Challa's jungle. Now, there is a bit of something twisted going on here. Um, they say that this is the same techno jungle that was in Fantastic Four number 52. However, if you actually read Fantastic Four number 52, that was underground and it was pure technology in the Jack Kirby style. Uh, there was nothing organic in it. This is a above-ground jungle that has become a hybrid where tiny pieces of technology are integrated into the plants and natural world. So as the panther spirit beats him, T'Challa is actually leading him on a little trip. He's leading him through grasses that leave traces of chemicals on him. He's leading him to where he's electrified. He's leading him through waters that have chemical reactions with what the grass left on him. And eventually, although he may not be able to attack the panther spirit, the panther spirit has possessed somebody, this Azanian man who was being tortured, and the body has a limit. And subjected to all these elements of the techno jungle, the man collapses. Even possessed by the panther spirit, there's a limit. As T'Challa Wells knows, having, you know, been a conduit of the panther for many times himself. Mm. Now, while this is all happening, the Azanians are looking for justification for war on Wakanda. Uh, and an interesting little thing is happening that was put in motion, presumably by that guy who was exiled from Wakanda. Remember that Avengers ID card that T'Challa had to trade away? Uh-huh. Well, it shows up with proof that while they're saying that this revolt was being planned against Azania by an outside government, which would be justification for war, they have the photographs of T'Challa in Paris with his Avengers ID card, which cannot be duplicated, proving that he was not there as a revolutionary act. 
Mm. Or supporting those revolutionary acts. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the peace proponents in the Azanian government says, now look at all what happened without him directly helping. Imagine what happens if we go to war with them and he is directly helping next time. Mm-hmm. But T'Challa is unaware of any of this because he's facing the panther spirit. And the human body collapses, but the panther spirit is alive and well and decides that he's just getting started whooping some T'Challa ass. He's making challa bread out of T'Challa. It actually looks kind of creepy. It is creepy. I love Dennis Cohen. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at this art. How can you not love that? So T'Challa... Uh, Replies, and he basically says, I'm sorry. I have not done enough for my people. I let evil flourish and I should have done better. But he says, I never faltered for lack of desire. And I always fought with what I had. And he says that he will worship the panther spirit, but he will fight the panther spirit. You are my God, and I will worship you with every fiber and sinew, and you are wrong, and I will fight you with every ounce of strength I have. And the panther spirit is pleased. T'Challa has realized he's not done enough. He's realized he's failed. He's realized he must do better. And he's realized that he can worship and fight at the same time, even the same thing. Uh, and, and, and the panther spirit does not bide weakness. His fault is not with T'Challa saying that the Azanian Africans should not die. His fault with T'Challa was T'Challa not finding ways to do more. Mm -hmm. And this is a not subtle criticism against people outside South Africa yelling down apartheid, you know, fight apartheid, apartheid is bad. But where were they giving financial aid? Where were they, you know, stopping economic trade with the South African white government? It's not a subtle commentary. Mm-hmm. And as we end, uh, the Azanian government is forced to the table with the African tribal natives of Azania. The Black Panther's position is restored. Now, in the real world, by 1988, Pressure was becoming more and more intense on the actual South Africa. Uh, And apartheid was ended within a few years of this. In fact, Nelson Mandela was freed after 27 years in prison. And I don't think that that guy being tortured was explicitly Nelson Mandela, but he was definitely a Nelson Mandela-like figure. Mm -hmm. And by 1994, Nelson Mandela... Uh, was elected as the first president of South Africa and a black leader. Uh, He's passed away now, but this is a landmark issue. This took the... How to put this? To be honest, jungle action was not very political. It was socially aware. But most of the story was about Wakanda... And Wakandans. I think it was critical to the evolution of the character of the Black Panther, but it really didn't touch on any kind of racial or social issue uh, until it came to America, and it was canceled soon after this. Now we are dealing with racial and social and political issues in an inherently political position of being a Black leader with a lot of power. And this is going to continue strongly. And without this interpretation of the Black Panther, he would not resonate with people and we would not have a Black Panther movie. We also have this integration of the techno jungle uh, showing for the first time an integration of the natural world with the technology of Wakanda. This is an evolution of the idea. Instead of them being juxtaposed as they were in jungle action where you had a modern building and then people, poor tribal people who didn't trust technology coming into these modern buildings... Now you have it integrated, and this will become a big thing as we get into some future Black Panther stories. Very, very big. And then at the same time, we have the introduction of magic, essentially, and a real panther god who's a presence. So 
we have an integration of the natural world with technology and a magical world all in Wakandan culture in this as well as an explicitly political political politicized T'Challa and it all happened in these four issues a lot happened in a four issues a lot happened now we will return to a fan favorite writer next week as we go into black Panther's uh, next run in Marvel premiere, in which much less happens. I have a question. Yes. Who's the guy only colored in white with his face? That is an interesting question. I think that was meant to be the supporter from earlier. Notice the uh, woman from Paris is there at his left. I think the guy from the right is the guy that helped him against the white gorilla and was banned. I think that somebody messed up, the colorist messed up, and just didn't get him filled in before the pages were turned in. Oh. Because okay. <laughs> I don't think it's the villain Tombstone. Yeah. Okay, I was just curious if that was a character I just hadn't heard of. I think that was just sloppy coloring, that it didn't get filled in, and nobody noticed, including the editor. Okay. Uh, Marvel's editorial process at times in history has not been all that great. For example... Contest of Champions went on some pages. They had two colorists. Black Panther was white. <laughs> Editorial controlled, not the best, folks. Black Panther white. And then on other pages, black. I mean, it was like having a melatonin deficiency that just <laughs> would pop every couple minutes. And, uh... Oh, there was an alternate universe Black Panther popping in and out. <laughs> That's, that's official continuity? I, no, I'm not asking if a frog was in charge of editorial. It, no, probably. he wasn't. Anyway. Um, so, there we go. Any any questions? What do you think of Dennis Cohen's art? I think it's just amazing. It is. He, he's amazing. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to come back to a fan favorite uh, writer next time. And we're going to see more of Wakanda's dinosaurs. Ooh. And, um, yeah, including pterodactyls. Not them. Yes, the pterodactyls are coming. Nothing but the pterodactyls and frogs. Yes, the pterodactyls are coming. All right. Uh, And if you want to know what Rowan's freaking out about pterodactyls, then you'll have to join us again for class next week. Now, tomorrow we're going to have another Feckett Thursday. Mm -hmm. Not Dr. Feckett, but Feckin' people. Except I think we're going to mix it up some. I want to do some historical topics. So I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do tomorrow, but I think it might be how two women help DC find its balls. Okay. So we'll see you then. Bye.